You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter, founder and investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired, to be a founder, or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. On today's episode, I speak with Ronnie Kwesi Coleman, who is the CEO and co-founder of Meaningful Gigs, a tech-enabled marketplace connecting skilled African designers with companies seeking high-quality digital design. After dropping out of college at 20 to support his family in Ghana, Ronnie got a job at a tech startup in Washington, D.C. Soon after, he helped launch the VC-backed startup Stay in Touch, which grew to 100-plus employees and was eventually acquired for $40 million. Since co-founding Meaningful Gigs in 2019, Ronnie has led the company's financial efforts, raising over 1 million in seed financing and creating jobs for and upskilling more than 300 African designers. They're at about 12 full-time people, grown revenue four to five times in 2021, and out now to raise a Series A. We discussed finding investors, finding co-founders and how you match your values, the values of the company and how that really comes together. We talk about finding investors when you don't have a network, how to prioritize which investors you want to work with. And we also end up with his advice for aspiring entrepreneurs. I think you'll enjoy it. So please stay tuned. Ronnie, welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate this a lot. Heard really great things and I know you're doing awesome stuff. So thank you. Yeah, it's great to learn more about your story. I'm really excited for this. Where I'd like to start is to know how is chess like building a startup? (laughs) It's funny. I I was just talking about this with some Harvard folks that were doing an interview on us, but so my co-founder and I, Max and I, we, we bonded over chess. We both used to play competitively um, tournaments, but we were talking about the fact that in chess, you always have a plan, right? Like the, the adage is, even if you have a bad plan, it's better than no plan, but you never know what your opponent's gonna do. And so you always have to adjust. And so the, the parallel to startups is you should always have a plan, right? But you're always going to need to adjust to what the market does. And you should be ready to do that. So that, that's the biggest parallel that I see between chess and, and startups. Our mutual friend, Sean Glass, wrote a book on startup and poker and all the lessons you can have from poker now, a lot of it having to do with probabilistic thinking, which I think is something that doesn't happen as much in chess, right? No, it happens. There's a lot of probability. I mean, you you look at, I mean, if, if you look at the highest level players like grandmasters, like a lot of them play to draws because they study the probabilities of, okay, if I play this opening and you play that opening, the probability that will be equal by move 20 is high and so yeah it's it's a lot of probability uh, i think poker 
I haven't really played well uh, a lot, but most of my chess friends that play poker well say that the difference is that chess has more predictability at the highest level than poker. And that poker, because there's more of a human element because of the like psychology and the bluffing and, and all that stuff. Well, I'm an expert on neither. So you have now exceeded <laughs> my understanding. I'm curious also, what are the factors that you believe make a person able to reach for their full potential? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that's that's our mission, right? We're guiding people toward their full potential. And we think about this question a lot. I think there are, there's three, three main factors. I think the first is just like skills that you can acquire, right? Like if you want to reach your full potential, you know, people, Malcolm Gladwell talks about like 10,000 hours, right? Like you have to work really hard within a specific field and get really good at it. And that will help you reach your full potential. And that's very true. That's like one part of it. The second prong is community. So there, there are people that are geniuses, right? There've been some people that are so good at something, but they say that, like, oh, they can't get a job or they can't work with anybody. And that's because they don't know how to make friends. They don't know how to communicate well. It, it's difficult for them to have community. And some people that don't have, like they're not masterful at certain skills, they end up you know, getting highest, the highest positions at certain companies just because they're great at like networking and building community and talking to people, right? So the first is reaching your potential is like being really good at a skill. And, and then second is being able to build a community. And then the third, which I feel like a lot of people don't understand and don't talk about much is, is culture. Like there is, there's a lot of differences between like different cultures and what might work, you know, skill-wise or community-wise for somebody in America might work very different uh, than somebody in China, India, or, you know, Nigeria. And I think understanding cultural differences and what makes somebody, what, what makes up somebody's values personally is, is very important, or at least you knowing your own values and what's important to you in, in reaching your full potential. And you said this is your mission as a company. Mm -hmm. Are you able to work on all three of those areas or do you focus on one of them? No, we work on all three. So we have a, a marketplace, right? And on one side of our marketplace is designers, so digital designers who are all over Africa. And on the other side, it's US companies, like large enterprises like Starbucks and IDEO and, and Facebook, et cetera. And all of, all of what we do is powered by an upskilling product, like a learning management system. So the upskilling product is what helps people get skills, right? All of the, the whole marketplace, we connect designers and companies together. So it's building community and pretty much all our vetting, our onboarding, kind of the, the upskilling is all taught through a values-driven lens. 
So we have four core values at our company, which is courage, integrity, empathy, and grit. And we make sure that everybody that's in our community aligns with that. And that's what builds our culture. So that's the skills, the community, and the culture. Internal culture. Mm -hmm. How do you address that difference you said in approaches across national cultures? Yeah, so we have looked at like what our values are. So when we look at uh, grit, right, it, it's aligned with what we saw all over Africa. So I, I think maybe a little bit of context would help. Like, so I'm, I'm from Ghana, right? That's where I grew up. I grew up in, in Africa and like growing up there, these were values that I could see all over the continent. So, you know, people were hardworking. People had a lot of grit, right? Um, empathy is important. Like people cared about each other in a very special way. People were very courageous. So a lot of friends and people I know that were just like in, I don't know, hard positions were able to kind of persevere, move out of those hard positions because they had a lot of courage. And then, you know, of course, integrity is important. It's part of the cultural values in a lot of countries all over Africa. So when my co-founders, Max and, and Steph, were talking about this, we were just unpacking what we've seen on the continent and aligning our values, like what we personally believed with what we saw from different African designers. And the model operates entirely virtually, correct? Yeah, it's 100% virtual remote. Yeah, when we started in 2019, we were, you know, people were like, well, nobody's, you know, these big companies aren't going to hire people from Africa. Like, why, why would you just focus on Africa? Why not start with the U.S.? And we were scared, but we, we said, oh, you know, eventually the world will be remote. Uh, we didn't know it will happen so soon and so quickly. I know another company in the software engineering space, Andela, mm. is famous for building physical campuses to do that training and to provide a workspace. And you leapfrogged that whole stage. Yeah, we did. And, and you know... I would, you know, I'd want to say that it's because we had this like, great foresight and vision, but the reality is Christina Sass, who's the co-founder of Andela, was one of my early advisors and is an investor in, in our company, Meaningful Gigs, and she kind of gave us the insight on, you know, the operational kind of cost, the pros and cons. And so with that kind of insider knowledge we're able to kind of make our decision to to avoid that and how do designers hear about you yeah at this point so we initially like used my connections on the continent so just going through my network and and getting introductions to different community leaders and that was like back in 2019 but very quickly word of mouth spread about what we're doing right because one of our like targets and our vision is to create 100,000 skilled jobs for Africans, right? And we were focusing on a design community, which we, well, the designers all over Africa felt they were overlooked, even though they were just as skilled as pretty much anybody in the world. And so now every designer that's on our platform just refers every other designer they know all over 
Africa. So a lot of it's just been like network effects, just referrals. We haven't spent a dollar on, on marketing or growth in that side, just been growing organically. Are there any particular countries where you are the strongest or most well-known? Yeah, so we're, we're really strong in Nigeria and in South Africa. And the main reason there is because they had the deepest uh, design ecosystems. So Nigeria, because they, they're they really strong in, in kind of the startup space. So they, they're like, you know, Lagos has been called like the Silicon Valley of, of Africa. And a lot of like VC investment has gone there. So what they've done is, you know, there were a lot of schools that popped up to teach design, a lot of communities that grew there. So they had a lot of great designers. And then South Africa just, again, they, they have like 50 or 60 design schools and um, a lot of design programs. So just that infrastructure existed in those two markets before we got there. And other places like Kenya, Ethiopia, Ghana, they're they're slowly coming up. But you know, th- those are places that we hope to help accelerate kind of their design communities through our, our platform. And when you got that question from investors, you mentioned, why focus on Africa? What's the answer? Yeah, so a lot, a lot of people don't know, you know, Africa is 100, well, it's, it's like, a, it's 1.3, like well, 1.2 something billion people, right? So it's really, really big. And so then you, you think about that, right? Like four times the size of the US and so many skilled people, right? Like skilled young people, not just in design, but you know, you got like a million designers all over the continent and companies in the US just don't know that they exist, right? So we say it's the largest untapped labor force in the world, that's one. The second thing is that by 2050, the number of young people entering the workforce in Africa will be more than all the young people entering the workforce in the entire world combined. So it's a crazy stat. So it's not only is it like the largest untapped workforce in the world now, it's going to just exponentially grow over the next like 10 to 20 years. So yeah, it's just, it's just a great place and somewhere that I know intimately and, and can grow and, and we found product market fit. So at least the data has kind of validated our initial theory. And so you were following the demographics, the business metrics, or were you also thinking of a mission orientation when you chose that? The mission's always there. So for me, when I was growing up, like I, I couldn't get a job out of college that would make three grand a year. And so the mission for me was always, well, if I had to leave Ghana in order to make it right in the US, like what about all the other billion people that couldn't leave that couldn't just immigrate to a different country and so it had always been super close to my heart to help kind of you know uplift uh, people back home so they didn't have to leave but also we don't I'd always been thinking about like well how do we build a thriving middle class because a lot of times people want to leave because there's not that middle class in a lot of uh, African countries and one of the things my co-founders and I did was we looked at China and said, well, how did a country with like 
a billion plus people that was one of the poorest in the world in the 1950s become, you know, an economic superpower. And we saw that, you know, they, it was through building a middle class, mainly they had in the year 2000, they had 3% middle class. And then by 2018, it was over 50%. So more than 700 million people in, in less than 20 years. And so we've kind of been following that just Again, it's it's important to have a mission and to like really want something like I did, but it's even more important to back it up with kind of the economics and and the data to make sure that we can achieve that mission. I love that. Don't just want something, back it up with data. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, because a lot of times, I mean, the other question that I get a lot is like, some people say like, well, why didn't you make it a nonprofit? And you know, I thought, well, why does it have to be a nonprofit? The correlation, just because it's Africa, it needs to be a nonprofit. The reality is like, no, there's economic value there. And if there's economic value, then, you know, for-profit actually has a bigger impact all over the continent. And if we look at the data again, like the last like 60, 70 years of nonprofits in Africa, they haven't really made a dent in building a middle class. Right. And so for us, like also like nonprofits don't scale. Well, for us, it's like, well, we want to impact millions and millions of people and build a middle class. And the best way to do that is by building kind of a for-profit marketplace, which again, looking at like China or, or India, that, that's similar to what they did. This has definitely been a theme on this podcast is the for-profit model allowing for more scale and more access to capital to enable that scaling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's like human dynamics, right? We talk about culture and it's like if, if the West has built wealth through kind of marketplace dynamics, buying and selling, then, you know, if, if Africans want to build wealth or, or people in Asia want to build wealth, like we, we can, you know, follow the models that we figured worked, right? It wasn't, it wasn't like the U.S. or Europe built a bunch of nonprofits, and that's what helped uh, build their middle class. So it's it's less so like trying to reinvent the wheel and more so following economic models that have worked. Yeah, I was just thinking when you were talking about building the American middle class, I was thinking about large government programs that supported infrastructure and education. Uh, home buying and home building, et cetera. But that takes us probably a bit far afield. <laughs> I'm excited about what you're doing and and the combination of marketplace with the learning sounds like it makes it more complicated. Do you think that that was, is that required? Is solely doing a marketplace model not gonna get you enough design talent? No, so we when we looked at building a, a labor marketplace, we thought about the challenges in, in like other labor marketplaces, let's say an Upwork, for instance. And, and we're, we're looking and we say, okay, well, you know, a marketplace is, a labor marketplace means that like, if I'm on a platform, if I'm working and earning money, that's great. You know, I'll stay on it. But otherwise, if I'm not, what reason do I have? to stay on, on the platform, right? And so our whole thing was, well, how do we build in retention 
how can we keep people on the platform even if they're not working but drive but use doing it in a way that drives and feeds our marketplace quality so it's not required but it's something that we feel like hey if we want to scale to millions and millions of people then it would be kind of it would add layers of defensibility it'll feed our marketplace with quality and then ultimately it would help upskill you know millions of people to go from making 20 bucks an hour to 100 bucks an hour right so there's economic impact in that as well don't just listen get engaged you've heard me talking about the startups for good giving circle and maybe you're wondering how does it work go to startupsforgood.com and click on giving circle you'll be able to sign up as a member and choose to make a reoccurring donation let's say $20 a month or whatever you can afford we will focus on newer or startup tech nonprofits to provide the initial angel funding to get them off the ground we will vote on a nonprofit recipient of our grant approximately quarterly. All donations are US tax deductible. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. Is design talent in short supply? It's in, yeah, it's in a, so if we think about design, right, there's UX, UI, app, like branding, graphic design, it, every, large customer every large company in the us and in the west is struggling to hire enough designers so it's it's a huge need for large companies it's a 162 billion dollar market and it keeps growing because if you think about pretty much everything that you have right like every device every ad you see every marketing material every user interface like it's some designers created it and nowadays because of all these like low code no code systems like you need less engineering and more differentiation just through design right like if you have two products that are built the same way well you end up choosing the one that's designed better right and that so that's like a big differentiator for a lot of companies and that's why they're struggling to find really really good design talent and are you able to take someone who's not a designer and get them to commercial designer? Or are you more thinking someone who's an okay designer and get them to be a great designer? Yeah, so we're more in the latter phase. So we, yeah, we take people that are okay, that have shown some interest in design. They've put, they've shown some grit, right? That's one of the things that we we use like through our value lens and, and we say, okay, this person has tried, you know, they haven't, done so great on their own, how do we make them better and then get them, you know, matched with a great job? Now, you mentioned Upwork as a labor marketplace, and I think there's probably others out there. I'm familiar with one that's using blockchain in the background and trying to give their community governance rights. Is that anything you've considered? No, no, I, we, yeah, I don't, I haven't considered it a probably because I don't know enough about the blockchain. So, you know, I'm not going to like step in an area that I know nothing about. Yeah. So I understand like kind of enterprise sales. That's what my background is in. And then the African market, because that's where I'm from. My co-founder, Steph, she has like a 15 year background in education. And then my co-founder, Max, he's 
He's a data guy, but he's been an engineer for the last 12 years. And so we've tried to stick within the things that we know uh, really well. Maybe you can tell me kind of what their value add was or what you know about kind of their, their marketplace and why, why they need to use blockchain. Yeah, I don't want to speak for them, but as I understand part of the promise of it is that the workers, the labor side of the marketplace is able to have more governance rights and potentially control and a feeling of, if not economic ownership, at least control ownership over the future of the marketplace. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a fascinating idea. But yeah, we, we definitely haven't thought about anything like that. Yeah, you were just laying out the backgrounds of the founders. And I'd love it if you could say a little bit more about that founder market fit and how you thought about building a team to have that kind of fit. Yeah, I think that the first thing that I wanted to do. So I, I was part of a founding team of a VC backed company called Stay in Touch back in 2013. And we, we grew with the company for about four years. That's where I learned to build a company and then end up getting acquired in 2017. That's where, you know, I met Sean and some other folks, but the founders, I mean, I, you know, it's public information, but the co-founders broke up, right? Like they weren't really close. And so they ended up breaking up and that, that ended up having some kind of adverse effects for the company. And so one of the things that I said to myself is that whenever I do this again, I'm going to be with co-founders that I trust implicitly. That's going to be the first, first and most important thing. It's like, do I trust the co-founders implicitly with my life? And then Stay in Touch got acquired and we started, I started thinking about like, what's the next move? I went to Steph, who I'd known for at that point, like six years, and she was in education. I know, I knew that she was like mission oriented. She had, you know, gone to Columbia Teachers College and, but then like worked in nonprofits and worked in education, but always wanted to make a bigger impact in education and help people at scale. So I started talking to her about Meaningful Gigs and she was excited to join on board. And then then I started thinking about like, well, who do I trust that understands technology? And Max, yeah, I'd known him also for about six, seven years. We, he was this like smartest person I knew. Like he, we, and he and I used to play chess, but he was also in like a, a band because he's a classically trained piano player. Then he was an engineer that decided to go to law school and start a practice for three years and did that. And then went back into like data science and engineering. So, so I was like, yeah, I just need to get him on board and, and him and Max, I mean, him and Steph were both super excited because they always wanted to uh, make an impact at scale, make a profit, but also do good. Yeah. And it was the best decision I ever made. Wonderful. Trust first. Trust first. And then experience. Yeah. And then luckily I, I got both, right? Like I got yeah. trust and, and experience. So if you can get both, but yeah, I would say optimizing for trust is I think more important in the very early stage because everything's so volatile and there's a lot of arguing and, you know, it's like any relationship, right? If you don't trust your partner, your wife, your girlfriend, like everything else becomes a lot harder. 
What are the topics that you think people argue about the most? <laughs> Finances, pretty much growing up. That's what my parents argued about mostly because we were poor. And so money was always a big thing in our family. I mean, I think people argue just about time, right? Quality time. So you're Great. saying this is both marriages and co-founder relationships, both the, yeah. the same types of arguments. Yeah, it's the same thing, right? Like what, what, what time are you spending on what? Like, how are you doing X? Like, you know, you said you were going to do X and how are you doing Y? Like, what are we doing with our runway? Where are we spending it? It's a similar, similar thing. It's finances, like allocation of time and resources. And how do you resolve those conflicts? Open communication. So as I said, one of our, our core values is integrity, right? And it's, it's doing what you say. So if I say, hey, I'm going to do X by X day, I'm going to do everything in my power to do it, right? And that continues to build trust. But in, in any circumstances, shit can happen. Something can pop up and you might not be able to do what you say. But the key to building trust is not letting that pass and be like, oh, sorry, I forgot or I didn't do it, is communicating openly along the way. Here's where I am. Here's what I've done. Here's, you know, if it doesn't happen when I've intended, like here are my fail safe. So here's what I'll do to adjust. And, and then, you know, and at the end of that, if you hit it, great. You know, you want to share your reflections. What did I learn? What can I get? Can I do better next time? And if you don't hit it, same thing, open communicate. What did I learn? What can I do better next time? And for us, that's what we've done. It's always doing what you say and opening, communicating openly. And then one thing that I, I learned a while back is that we don't learn from reflection. I mean, we don't learn from doing, we learn from reflecting on what we did, right? So we, we spend a lot of time doing reflection together. So follow through or renegotiate the commitment. Make sure you're reflecting, doing retrospectives so that you learn. Precisely. You know, I've heard hypothesized that if you want people to build trust and, and have high accountability, following through a 90 plus percent, maybe even 95% of your commitments is important. I've always wondered, like, what is that ratio? Uh, how often can you renegotiate commitments without breaking trust? I think there's a, the, the, well, like another value that's important for us is empathy. Right. And so it's, it's, we say like actively listening and being considerate of others. And so I think like using a metric like that, like a data-driven approach, say, okay, 90%. And if somebody doesn't follow through 90%, they're less trustworthy without being empathetic to what was going on in that person's life at that time, I think like doesn't give you a, a, a big enough picture. So personally, we wouldn't use straight up metrics there, especially again with co-founders in the early stage. I think once you get to like super large company and scale, then you can't just, you know, understand people's personal lives, things might change. But at least for us, like we take, you know, the, like what's going on in the person's life into consideration as well. Right. So how big is the company right now? Right now we are 12 full-time and then we have two part-time and yeah, plan to a three to four X that growth uh, this year after, after we go raise uh, our series A. 
That's a lot of team growth. That's significant. If you're going to end the year, like almost 50 people. Yeah. I mean, we, we started lean and intentionally like last year, we, we said, Hey, we, you know, we figured out that enterprises like large companies really want to hire designers. Let's go raise we have a, a small round a million bucks, let's be super capital efficient, hire a small team, and then, you know, see if we really found product market fit. And we did, we, we brought in like 12 top tier enterprises in the last six months, and, and they're growing, like I said, IDEO, Starbucks, Facebook, all of them came in, we 5 x our revenue growth from last year. And I said, the, the designer side is growing organically, Customers keep hiring, so there's this land and expand. So, yeah, we we reached product market fit, and now we're like, hey, we if we put a dollar in, we're getting two out. So, might as well, you know, raise more money and and you know, pour gas on on the fire. So, so we gotta we gotta grow while the market's saying we should grow. When you think about bringing in investors, either investors you've brought in so far coming up. How do you think about that mission orientation? How important is that to you? How do you find that kind of investor? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. I've thought about this question again in, in, the, in the same vein as relationships with you know, anybody I meet. And I think about how have I met the closest people that I know? And there are usually two factors. One is through referrals. I, I've built, like, I, I trust somebody and then they refer me. And the other is just through time. You just know somebody over a long period of time. And so for us right now, the way we think about getting like the right investors is, is through referrals. So we get a referral from somebody that we've trust, that we trust, that we've built a relationship over time. Then, you know, that gives us kind of a higher confidence that we're picking the right investors. And then after that, it's, yeah, it's just going to be time. Like we just have to have that relationship and go through some challenges and build trust over time. And then there's really no shortcut there. And it's, I think, you know, it's, it's all good and well in the beginning, everybody's selling, everybody's trying to be like showing their best face, like on their first or second date. But, the, but when, you know, shit hits the fan, that's when you realize, Know, the, the relationship and the strength of it. Do you need to, or do you prioritize having investors who have an explicit mission orientation? I, I prioritize investors or we prioritize investors that have a values driven orientation. So, you know, I think sometimes, you know, missions are fine. I mean, I, I feel like everybody has a mission now, right? Like every, every company, every, every fund, everybody says, hey, our mission is to do this and we're mission driven. But what I like to hear and understand is like, well, what are your values as a person and as, as a organization? And what have you done over the last you know, X amount of years to live into those values? And I think that's what I, we respect the most ultimately, because it doesn't have to necessarily be impact investing or mission investing, whatever that is. We want people that are, are values driven. And if their value is, hey, we want to make a shit ton of money and help 
our portfolio company's IPO. And that's one of our biggest values because X, Y, Z, and they live into that and they're open and they're clear, then I respect that more than somebody that says, hey, we're mission oriented, but you really can't, they can't explain to you what they've done specifically to show that they, they're mission oriented. Does that make sense? I think so. It gets back to integrity and trust that you were talking about. Yeah, man. Tell me about the Black Exchange. Does that feed into your fundraising strategy or is that more about helping others find investors? Yeah, so Black Exchange was started last year. I was right before the pandemic. And, you know, I was was raising money for the first time. And I realized I just didn't have a network of investors and or the community, right? I didn't have that community of folks. You know, I didn't go to the, the a school where there were a lot of investors. Or I didn't really know too many. And I started just talking to kind of everybody I could and trying to understand like, uh, well, startup founders, right? Like if they were in the same boat. And I realized that a lot of founders that looked like me, so black founders, people of color, they were in the same boat. They were struggling. They didn't really have a network. And at the same time, there were a lot of like black investors or even just like high net worth individuals that didn't know that those founders existed because they would get like deal flow from people that were already connected. And so the idea and the premise was like, hey, let's, let's take people of color and connect them with other people of color and hopefully they can just network and connect and build community and and not really ask for anything it doesn't have to be transactional it's just people getting to know each other and yeah and it's it's been great like we you know we've grown our community and connected founders to investors and again the goal is not so much to to be transactional and say like oh x people raised x amount of money the goal is for people to build and relationships and going back to the trust over time. And uh, we've been able to do that with you know, a few hundred founders and investors for the last two years. Wow. That sounds like a lot of growth. Yeah, it's been good. It's been, it's been really good. Super proud of it. Super excited. It's, you know, there's always more you can do, but so far so good. So I checked with Sean before the podcast and he wanted me to ask you, this is across the board, you know, any topic, if there were one thing that you could snap your fingers and change, what would it be? So, uh, you know, when I think about a question like that, I, I try to think about like my like philosophy on life. And it really is like everything happens when it needs to happen. So Jerry Seinfeld was talking to Trevor Noah you know, he's the host of The Daily Show, upcoming comedian and comedians in cars getting coffee. And this resonated with me because I remember Trevor Noah, you know, young, up and coming, talking to Jerry Seinfeld, who's this, you know, monolith. And he says, Jerry, so tell me, like, what is one thing that I, I could learn about comedy? What do I need to know? And he said, oh, when you need to know it, you'll know it. 
and that just resonated with me so much and and it really is that like if somebody told me like hey when you're 20 years old if you could learn all the lessons that you know now what would you change and i'm like you know most likely i wouldn't because context matters and my life experiences and the pain and the grit and all the things that have gotten me to this point are necessary and so i really would not change anything if i could fascinating answer thank you is there any other advice you would have i mean maybe you can't tell someone something that will completely change where they are but if they are in the point to hear it is there any advice that you would give to an up-and-coming entrepreneur yeah i i would say again like trying to understand your own values like who you are as a person because the most difficult thing you know i found or people find is that when you're when you're out like building a company, recruiting people, getting investors, everybody has their own opinion. Everybody has their own view. Everybody thinks about things in a different way. And I think a lot of like young entrepreneurs, they always get swayed by, you know, some somebody that's smooth talking or tells them one thing. But the most important thing is to really understand where you are and who you are as a person and have your values and what you stand for. And if you have that, then when you go out and you're clear about what you believe and who you are, then you'll start attracting people and connecting with others that are within your community and, and that understand your values and can help you grow within those values. But I think, yeah, just understanding who you are is important. And maybe the second thing I would say is I, like one of the philosophies that I live by is how you do anything is how you do everything. And so pretty much if you can find a business or do whatever you need to do that harmonizes with your life and it's not completely separate, it's not something new, then try to do that. Try to make sure that your life and your work have harmony and that way, then your work is play and it's more enjoyable and you love what you're doing every day. And yeah, it just makes life more fun. Well, that's a wonderful place to wrap up. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much, Miles. I really appreciate it and excited for all the stuff you're doing. Is there anywhere online you'd like people to follow up or to tune in to your socials, your website? Yeah, I think the, the easiest place is it's probably LinkedIn or Google, I mean, if they Google Ronnie Quasi Coleman, uh, Meaningful Gigs, and they'll be able to find all kind of our LinkedIn and socials all there. And um, LinkedIn's usually the, the one place I, I connect with people. Um, so yeah, feel free to add me, send me a note, share your thoughts, or, or share some of your values. And yeah, happy to connect with people there. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Miles. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Reviews really do help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and you can follow me on LinkedIn. If you are inspired today and want to join our giving circle, please do so on our website, startupsforgood.com. Thank you.